Hey guys, this is Hasib Qureshi, and I'm guest hosting for a special weekend episode of Software Engineering Daily. Normally, these episodes would be longer, but today we decided to try out a concept piece, and so we're going to have today's episode be ad-free. The thing I love most about programming is that it's one of those few human enterprises where you can't get away with bullshit. Either your code works or it doesn't, and it doesn't matter how well you can persuade other people that your code ought to work, or even if you can persuade yourself. If the program crashes, the code is wrong, and it's your fault. That's also the thing, incidentally, that I hate most about programming. Now, no matter what kind of programmer you are, the one thing that all programmers share is debugging. And the very hardest bugs tend to be demanding, infuriating, and sometimes downright unbelievable. And that's why I'm a big fan of debugging stories and why I want to share with you three of my favorite debugging stories of all time. These stories were all written by software engineers, uh, programmers on different platforms over the last 20 years, and I think you're going to find them really enjoyable. So this story is an absolute classic and probably my favorite debugging story of all time. I think you'll find it quite, quite entertaining. It's about a misbehaving email server. The case of the 500-mile email. This story was originally written by Trey Harris, uh, November 2002. Uh, and it was originally in a post to a, uh, a news group called Sage Members. Here's a problem that sounded impossible. I almost regret posting the story to a wide audience because it makes a great tale over drinks at a conference. The story is slightly altered in order to protect the guilty, allied over irrelevant and boring details, and generally to make the whole thing more entertaining. I was working in a job running the campus email system some years ago when I got a call from the chairman of the statistics department. We're having a problem sending email out of the department. What's the problem? I asked. We can't send email more than 500 miles, the chairman explained. I choked on my latte. Come again? We can't send email farther than 500 miles from here, he repeated. A little bit more, actually. Call it 520 miles, but no farther. Um, email really doesn't work that way, generally, I said, trying to keep panic out of my voice. What doesn't display panic when speaking to a department chairman, even of a relatively impoverished department like statistics? What makes you think you can't send mail more than 500 miles? It's not what I think, the chairman replied testily. You see, when we first noticed this happening a few days ago, you waited a few days, I interrupted, a tremor tinging my voice, and you couldn't send email this whole time? We could send email, just not more than 500 miles, yes, I finished for him. I got that. But why didn't you call earlier? Well, we hadn't collected enough data to be sure of what was going on until just now. Right, this is the chairman of statistics. Anyway, I asked one of the geostatisticians to look into it. Geostatisticians? Yes, and she's produced a map showing the radius within which we can send email to be slightly more than 500 miles. There are a number of destinations within that radius we can't reach either, or reach sporadically, but we can never email farther than this radius. I see, I said, and put my head in my hands. When did this start? A few days ago, you said, but did anything change in your systems at that time? Well, the consultant came in and patched our server and rebooted it, but I called him and he said he didn't touch the mail system. Okay, 
Let me take a look, and I'll call you back, I said, scarcely believing that I was playing along. It wasn't April Fool's Day. I tried to remember if someone owed me a practical joke. I logged into their department's server and sent a few test emails. This was in the research triangle of North Carolina, and a test mail to my own account was delivered without a hitch. Ditto for one sent to Richmond and Atlanta and Washington. Another to Princeton, 400 miles away, worked. But then I tried to send an email to Memphis, 600 miles. It failed. Boston failed. Detroit failed. I got out my address book and started trying to narrow this down. New York, 420 miles, worked. But Providence, 580 miles, failed. I was beginning to wonder if I had lost my sanity. I tried emailing a friend who lived in North Carolina, but whose ISP was in Seattle. Thankfully, it failed. If the problem had had to do with the geography of the human recipient and not his mail server, I think I would have broken down in tears. Having established that, unbelievably, the problem as reported was true and repeatable, I took a look at the sendmail.cf file, the config file. It looked fairly normal. In fact, it looked familiar. I diffed it against the sendmail.cf in my home directory. It hadn't been altered, it was the sendmail.cf I had written. And I was fairly certain I hadn't enabled the fail mail over 500 miles option. At a loss, I telnetted into the SMTP port. The server happily responded with a a SunOS SendMail banner. Wait a minute. A SunOS SendMail banner? At the time, Sun was still shipping SendMail 5 with its operating system, even though SendMail 8 was fairly mature. Being a good sysadmin, I had standardized on SendMail 8. And also being a good sysadmin, I had written a sendmail.cf that used the nice, long, self-documenting option and variable names available in sendmail8, rather than the cryptic punctuation mark codes that had been used in sendmail5. The pieces fell into place all at once, and I again choked on the dregs of my now-cold latte. When the consultant had patched the server, he had apparently upgraded the version of SunOS, and in doing so, downgraded sendmail. The upgrade helpfully left the sendmail.cf alone, even though it was now the wrong version. It so happens that sendmail5, at least the version that Sun shipped, which had some tweaks, could deal with the sendmail8 sendmail.cf as most of the rules at that point had remained unaltered. But the new long configuration options, those it saw as junk and skipped. And the sendmail binary had no defaults compiled in for most of these, so finding no suitable settings in the sendmail.cf file, they were set to zero. One of the settings that was set to zero was the timeout to connect to the remote SMTP server. Some experimentation established that on this particular machine with its typical load, a zero timeout would abort a connect call in slightly over three milliseconds. An odd feature of our campus network at the time was that it was 100% switched. An outgoing packet wouldn't incur a router delay until hitting the pop and reaching a router on the far side. So time to connect to a lightly loaded remote host on a nearby network would actually be largely determined by the speed of light distance to the destination, rather than by incremental router delays. Feeling slightly giddy, I typed into my shell, units, you have three seconds. You want miles. 558.84719. 500 miles or a little more. Trey Harris.
So this next story comes from the world of game development, particularly for the game Crash Bandicoot on the PS1, which I believe was one of the PlayStation launch titles. Um, We don't talk a lot about game development on Software Engineering Daily, but I think you guys will get a kick out of this one. My Hardest Bug Ever by Dave Baggett. This was originally posted November 31st, 2013. As a programmer, you learn to blame your code first, second, and third, and somewhere around 10,000th, you blame the compiler. Well, down the list after that, you blame the hardware. This is my hardware bug story. Among other things, I wrote the memory card load save code for Crash Bandicoot, the uh, PlayStation 1 game. For a swaggering game coder, this is like a walk in the park. I expected it would take a few days. I ended up debugging that code for six weeks. I did other stuff during that time, but I kept coming back to this bug. A few hours every few days. It was agonizing. The symptom was that you'd go to save your progress, and it would access the memory card. And almost all of the time, it worked normally. But every once in a while, the write or read would time out, for no obvious reason. A short write would often corrupt the memory card. The player would go to save, and not only would we not save, we'd wipe their memory card. Though, after a while, our producer at Sony, Connie Booth, began to panic. We obviously couldn't ship the game with that bug, and after six weeks, I still had no clue what the problem was. Via Connie, we put word out to the other PS1 devs. Had anybody seen anything like this? Nope. Absolutely nobody had any problems with the memory card system. About the only thing you can do when you run out of ideas debugging is divide and conquer. Keep removing more and more of the errant program's code until you're left with something relatively small that still exhibits the problem. You keep carving parts away until the only stuff left is where the bug is. The challenge with this in the context of, say, a video game, is that it's very hard to remove pieces. How do you still run the game if you remove the code that simulates gravity or renders the characters? What you have to do is replace entire modules with stubs that pretend to do the real thing but actually do something completely trivial that can't be buggy. You have to write new scaffolding code just to keep things working at all. It's a slow, painful process. Long story short, this is what I did. I kept removing more and more hunks of code until I ended up, pretty much, with nothing but the startup code. Just the code that set up the system to run the game, initialize the rendering hardware, etc. Of course, I couldn't put up the load save menu at that point because I'd stubbed out all the graphics code. But I could pretend the user used the invisible load save screen and asked to save, then write to the card. I ultimately ended up with a pretty small amount of code that exhibited the problem, but still randomly. Most of the time it would work, but every once in a while it would fail. Almost all of the actual Crash Bandicoot code had been removed, but it still happened. This was really baffling. The code that remained wasn't really doing anything. At some point, it was probably 3 a.m., a thought entered my mind. Reading and writing, I.O., involves precise timing. Whether you're dealing with a hard drive, a compact flash card, a Bluetooth transmitter, whatever, the low-level code that reads and writes has to do so according to a clock. The clock lets the hardware device, which isn't directly connected to the CPU, stay in sync with the code the CPU is running. The clock determines the baud rate, the rate at which data is sent from one side to the other. If the timing gets messed up, the hardware or the software, or both, get confused. This is really, really bad and usually results in data corruption. 
What if something in our setup code was messing up the timing somehow? I looked again at the code in the test program for timing-related stuff and noticed that we were setting the programmable timer on the PS1 to 1 kilohertz, 1,000 ticks per second. This is relatively fast. It was running at something like 100 hertz in the default state when the PS1 started up. Most games, therefore, would have this timer running at 100 hertz. Andy, the lead and only other developer on the game, set the timer to 1 kilohertz so that the motion calculations in Crash Bandicoot would be more accurate. Andy likes overkill, and if we were going to simulate gravity, we ought to do it as high precision as possible. But what if increasing this timer somehow interfered with the overall timing of the program, and therefore with the clock used to set the baud rate for the memory card? I commented the timer code out. I couldn't make the error happen again. But this didn't mean that it was fixed. The problem only happened randomly. What if I was just getting lucky? As more days went on, I kept playing with my test program. The bug never happened again. I went back to the full Crash Bandicoot codebase and modified the load save code to reset the programmable timer to its default setting, 100 hertz, before accessing the memory card, then put it back to 1 kilohertz afterwards. We never saw those read-write problems again. But why? I returned repeatedly to the test program, trying to detect some pattern to the errors that occurred when the timer was set to 1 kilohertz. Eventually, I noticed that the errors happened when someone was playing with the PS1 controller. Since I would rarely do this myself, why would I play with a controller while testing the load save code? I hadn't noticed it. But one day, one of the artists was waiting for me to finish testing. I'm sure I was cursing at the time, and he was nervously fiddling with the controller. It failed. Wait, what? Hey, do that again. Once I had the insight that the two things were correlated, it was easy to reproduce. Start writing to the memory card, wiggle controller, corrupt memory card. Sure looked like a hardware bug to me. I went back to Connie and told her what I'd found. She relayed this to one of the hardware engineers who had designed the PS1. Impossible, she was told. This cannot be a hardware problem. I told her to ask if I could speak with him. He called me, and in his broken English and my extremely broken Japanese, we argued. I finally said, just let me send you a 30-line test program that makes it happen when you wiggle the controller. He relented. This would be a waste of time, he assured me, and he was extremely busy with a new project, but he would oblige because we were a very important developer for Sony. I cleaned up my little test program and sent it over. The next evening, we were in L.A. and he was in Tokyo, so it was evening for me when he came in the next day, he called me and sheepishly apologized. It was a hardware problem. I've never been totally clear on what the exact problem was, but my impression from what I heard back from Sony HQ was that the programmable timer, uh, was that setting the programmable timer to a sufficiently high clock rate would interfere with things on the motherboard near the timer crystal. One of these things was the baud rate controller for the memory card, which also set the baud rate for the controllers. I'm not a hardware guy, so I'm pretty fuzzy on the details, but the gist of it was that the crosstalk between individual parts on the motherboard and the combination of sending data over both the controller port and the memory card while running the timer at 1 kilohertz would cause bits to get dropped and the data lost and the card corrupted. This is the only time in my entire programming life that I've debugged a problem caused by quantum mechanics. Side note, uh, really properly this should be said uh, problems caused by electrical effects, but... Uh, the, the, the writer said that he used quantum mechanics for effect.
so this last story is about a bug so bad that it led the person who debugged it to leave their country. Debugging Behind the Iron Curtain, written by Jake Poznanski, uh, originally written August 19th, 2010. Sergei is a veteran of the early days of the computing industry as it was developing in the Soviet Union. I had the pleasure of working and learning from him over the past year, and in that time I've picked up more important lessons about both life and embedded programming than any amount of school could ever teach me. The most striking lesson is the story of how and why, in the late summer of 1986, Sergei decided to move his family out of the Soviet Union. In the 1980s, Sergei was writing software for an SM-1800, a Soviet clone of the PDP-11. The microcomputer was just installed at a railroad station near Sverdlovsk, a major shipping center for the USSR at the time. The new system was designed to route train cars and cargo to their intended destinations. But there was a nasty bug. It was causing random failures and crashes. The crashes would always occur once everyone had gone home for the night. But despite extensive investigation, the computer always performed flawlessly during manual and automatic testing procedures the next day. Usually, this indicates a race condition or some other concurrency bug that only manifests itself under certain circumstances. Tired of late-night phone calls from the station, Sergei decided to get to the bottom of it, and his first step was to learn exactly which conditions in the rail yard were causing the computer to crash. He first compiled a history of all occurrences of the unexplained crashes and plotted their dates and times on a calendar. Sure enough, a pattern was clearly visible. By observing the behavior for several more days, Sergei saw that he could easily predict the timing of future system failures. He soon figured out that the rail yard computer malfunctioned only when the cargo being processed was live cattle coming in from northern Ukraine and western Russia, heading for a nearby slaughterhouse. In and of itself, this was strange, as the local slaughterhouse had in the past been supplied with livestock from farms located much closer, like in Kazakhstan. As you may know, the Chernobyl nuclear power plant disaster occurred in 1986 and spread deadly levels of radiation, which to this day make the nearby area uninhabitable. The radioactivity caused broad contamination in the surrounding areas, including northern Ukraine, Belarus, and western Russia. Suspicious of possibly high levels of radiation in the incoming train cars, Sergei devised a method to test his theory. Possession of personal Geiger counters were restricted by the Soviet government, so he went drinking with a few military personnel stationed at the rail yard. After a few shots of vodka, he was able to convince a soldier to measure one of the suspected trail cars, and they discovered that the radiation levels were orders of magnitude above normal. Not only were the cattle shipments highly contaminated with radiation, the levels were high enough to randomly flip bits in the memory of the SM-1800, which was located in a building close to the railroad tracks. Uh, here's a, there's a postscript from the author where he says, I asked for Sergei's response as to how the radiation levels could affect the computer's operation. And Sergei's response was, I'm, I'm not going to do this in an accent, but he says, Cow were alive, so the amount of radiation was not immediately deadly for peoples and cockroaches, but probably deadly enough for 8-inch floppy drives, 4K static RAM, or 16K dynamic RAM, which were based on capacitive charge. 
and postscript. There were often significant food shortages in the Soviet Union, and the government plan was to mix the meat from the Chernobyl area cattle with the uncontaminated meat from the rest of the country. This would lower the average radiation levels of the meat without wasting valuable resources. Upon discovering this, Sergei immediately filed immigration papers with any country that would listen. The computer crashes resolved themselves over time as the radiation levels eventually dropped. And of course, Sergei left the Soviet Union. So that's the end of our debugging stories for today. You know, I really love debugging stories, and I think it's because, I mean, for one, I really enjoy the, the mystery element, you know, this Sherlock Holmes kind of sleuthing that you end up doing when you're debugging something. The other thing I love about a lot of these stories is that I guess it's the solidarity that I feel with the programmers who are working on these problems. You know, it's it, a lot of times when reading about old systems or reading about the history of computing, it's easy to feel like, man, we've modern programmers kind of have all the hard problems solved and everything laid out for us. But listening to some of these stories, I think, gives you an appreciation that, you know, really the the core, the root of programming has always kind of been the same. And, uh, you know, what people were doing back in the 80s and 90s trying to debug problems, although it sounds more intense, is uh, in kind or in process is the same sort of thing that I end up doing today when I'm debugging something. And uh, I, I like that. I like knowing that. Anyway, uh, this is Hasib Qureshi again. And uh, if you have any comments, feedback uh, you'd like to share with us, please do. We, we very much welcome that. Uh, tweet us or send us an email with how you thought that today's show went. Uh, thanks for listening and uh, happy debugging. Happy debugging.